one more song coming. But uh, good morning, and um, let me just say that uh, I appreciated the, the time we could spend worshiping this morning as a church, and we're so delighted that you're here. We trust that this will be an experience that, um, a time when we will encounter God in a new and a fresh way that will prepare us not only for tomorrow, but for the days and weeks ahead. Some of you will remember that movie, Sliding Doors. Remember that? It was released back in the late 1990s. Let me be clear, this is not any kind of an endorsement or recommendation. It's more of a a confession than anything. I, I find the plot of this movie clever and rather intriguing. Who hasn't looked in the rearview mirror of their life and wondered, what if, what if Cynthia and I had one more child? What if Cynthia had said no? <laughs> I'd be really in trouble. What if I had completed that engineering degree instead of going off to Bible college? What if we turned right instead of left? Well, the lead character in the movie is a woman by the name of Helen. The setting of the story is in London, England, and she works in public relations when she shows up at work one morning and is fired. She heads out the door of the office and she runs to catch the next train at the subway station. In the first scenario, she arrives at just the right time, catches the train and heads home. In the second scenario, she just misses the train. And she's left standing on the platform. In one life, she stays with her boyfriend, Jerry. In the other life, she gets home early, finds him entertaining his ex, dumps him, and eventually marries James Hamerton. Two very different paths based on whether she catches or misses the train. Robert Frost wrote a famous poem titled, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, 
Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. In John chapter 6, we not only find, we do not find two roads diverging in a yellow wood, but we do get to learn from two groups of people that take two very different paths leading away from Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. The Apostle John wrote this gospel account so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. In the first five chapters of the book, we've been exposed to eyewitness testimony and the reports of works and words of Jesus that offer support for John's purpose in writing this book, Evidences. And once again, as we come to John chapter 6, we discover an astounding display of supernatural power. Jesus feeds a multitude consisting of perhaps 20 to 25,000 people. Remember, we are told that there was about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. He fed them all, as much as they wanted. And when, with, and when they were all full, he instructed his disciples to gather the leftovers. And they gathered 12 baskets of leftovers, fragments, all coming from five barley loaves and two small fish. This was a miracle of all miracles. In fact, it's recorded in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only one of Jesus' miracles that are recorded in all four. And can you imagine being one of the participants in that miracle that day? Imagine being one of the disciples standing there, holding one of the 12 baskets of fragments of leftovers. Or imagine being one in that multitude, sitting on the grass, full of bread and fish. The sun begins to sit, set over the Sea of Galilee. And you're, and you're left realizing that this unforgettable day is drawing to a close. There were two paths, two roads that led away from this historic event. One was traveled by his disciples, the other by the crowd. They offer two very different scenarios, a sliding door experience, two roads in a yellow wood. There is the path his disciples traveled and the one traveled by the crowd. And you and I, we have an opportunity to learn from both. Lessons from a tale of two roads. And by tale, I'm not referring even for a minute that this is a fictional story. It is absolutely true. But to learn the lessons from a tale of these two roads, 
we'll need to first of all explore them and then take note of a couple of disclosures and a couple of clarifications. But before we do that, I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able for the reading from God's Word. And we'll begin with John chapter 1, or chapter 6, verse 1. So beginning at verse 1, do you want to do something different today in the scripture reading, just for some variety? You guys can just sit and listen, but this side here, why don't you be Jesus? So when I come to the place where Jesus speaks, you're going to read those words. Is that okay? There'll be two occasions, I'm warning. And you folks, how about you be the crowd? Okay, so let's read through this together. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes, and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, and I want to interrupt just for a moment. We won't start this until we get to verse 16. Let me read the first 15 verses. Okay? Thanks. The crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii, worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so men sat down, in number about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the disciples saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now here's where we come to our reading for this morning. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, So they were willing to receive him into the boat, 
and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his, his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate br the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Jesus answered them and said, be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Father, we acknowledge that your word is alive and powerful. Thank you for providing and preserving this written revelation of your person, your plans, and your purposes. Thank you that it is a reliable expression of the truth, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Your powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is untouched by your word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. Father, may that become our testimony this morning. As we consider the paths taken by the disciples and the crowd following Jesus' display of supernatural power in feeding this multitude, may we learn the lessons from those who have gone before us so that we can follow in the steps of those who got it right and avoid the missteps of those who got it wrong. Teach us, we pray. By your spirit and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin by exploring a tale of two roads. The roads the disciples traveled led to a storm, a supernatural encounter, and safety. Look at verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Unlike Matthew and Mark's report of this same incident, John leaves us with the impression that the disciples were heading out across the Sea of Galilee as a result of their own initiative. Such was not the case. In fact, Jesus was the one who had escorted them to the boat and insisted. According to Matthew's report, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat 
and go ahead of him to the other side. So as far as the disciples were concerned, this was not an option. They had to head out across the lake. And obviously, John's purposes did not require this detail. But I think it's worth noting, especially in light of what happens next. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. So Jesus had just done what no man could ever do. The evidence is probably with his disciples in that boat, 12 baskets of leftovers. He insisted them that they separate ways and his disciples find themselves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's now dark. And darkness in the Gospel of John is never a good thing. In John chapter 13, verse 30, you'll remember that Judas leaves the Last Supper. He goes out into the night once Satan has entered him. And so we find Judas escaping the upper room into the darkness to make the final arrangements for his betrayal of Jesus. I don't ever remember having a curfew, per se, but my mom and dad always wanted to know where we were going and what time they could expect us home. And although we didn't have an exact time, I do remember my dad always saying, George, remember, nothing good ever happens after midnight. In other words, be home at midnight. Or, better yet, because our family operated with the rule, if you're not five minutes early, you're ten minutes late. So, 11.50 is what he was saying. We argued that we never had a curfew. He would argue that we never had a curfew, but it seemed to us that, that we did. Well, it was past midnight when the disciples, having cooperated with Jesus' send-off, find themselves struggling in the midst of a, a nasty storm. Again, the Apostle John seems to downplay the drama and focuses on the facts. Because Matthew, in his report, mentions the boat was a long distance from land, battered by waves, for the wind was contrary. Mark affirms the same, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And these are seasoned fishermen, remember. John just cuts to the chase. After Jesus withdrew, the disciples were making their way across the Sea of Galilee without him when they encountered this horrible storm. Interesting. They complied with Jesus' directive. Now remember, this is God dressed in human flesh telling them to go across the Sea of Galilee. And they find themselves battling a storm. Has that ever been your experience? You are trusting the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding, and your path becomes full of 
curves and twists and turns and ups and downs, more like a Canada Wonderland roller coaster ride. Whatever happened to making our paths straight? I think the memory of it was attached to those 12 baskets of leftovers in the bow of the bo- in the bow of the boat. That memory was quickly fading. Look at verse 19. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they, say they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were frightened. So they are three or four miles into a six or seven mile trip across the Sea of Galilee, back to the city of Capernaum. Dad, are we there yet? Mark and Matthew tell us that it is now about the the fourth watch of the night. That's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So let's say that Jesus sent them out around nine o'clock at night and that's being really conservative because the sunset well in advance of that so it's probably closer to 6 p.m that they were sent off or maybe even a little bit earlier but for the sake of argument let's just stick with nine o'clock they left the shores on the sea of galilee and headed out across the sea so they've been rowing for approximately six hours. And I tried, but I failed in my research this past week to find out how long it would take to paddle one of those first century fishing boats across the Sea of Galilee. But I do know that three miles an hour on our treadmill is a pretty leisurely walk. That tells me a couple of things. This was quite a storm that these disciples were caught in. This is no small blower. This is big. And the second thing it tells me is that Jesus could have walked across that lake in two hours. And they've been on the lake rowing for over six now. There's a Greek word that's translated in this verse, 19. It's epi, and it can be translated on or by, legitimately. And so for those who absolutely are unconvinced of miracles, they try and explain this by saying that Jesus was walking along the shoreline, and because of the storm, the disciples were hugging the shoreline with their boat, and they just happened to catch a glimpse of Jesus walking along the shoreline. But what that fails to explain is the comment, and they were frightened. In fact, Matthew and Mark report they were terrified when they saw Jesus. Look at verse 20. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. 
So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. Some understand that last phrase as communicating another miracle had just taken place. And it's certainly a a possibility, I suppose, but completely unnecessary. Both Matthew and Mark indicate that when Jesus boarded that boat, the wind stopped. And certainly, without the wind, that remaining two or three miles would have seemed like immediately after battling for the last six-plus hours. Matthew chose to include Peter's attempt to get out of the boat and join Jesus for a walk on the water. John chooses to keep the spotlight entirely on Jesus and the impact that his presence in the boat had for the disciples. When they received Jesus into the boat, they arrived safely at their destination. A storm. Another supernatural encounter. Safety home, safely home. That was the road the disciples traveled. The crowd, they had an entirely different experience. The road the crowd traveled led to loitering, looking, and listening. Notice verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except the one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone on alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. The next day, apparently they camped out. The people who had participated in this miracle meal had stayed the night. I like how John describes them the next morning. Stood. Loitering. Frozen in time. Remember the disciples following Jesus' resurrection appearances? It's reported in the book of Acts. It says that Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. And they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly appeared among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Perhaps loitering after these kinds of miraculous encounters is not all that uncommon. Following Jesus' withdrawal, the crowd remained at the site of the miraculous feeding of the multitude. Peter, you'll remember, he wanted to build tabernacles or shelters up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And who can blame them for wanting to just hang around, not move on? Seems that all of us love to hang around those mountaintop experiences. Look at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, 
they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. You see, Capernaum had become the headquarters for Jesus' company during their public ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 reports that they had left Nazareth and he came and settled in Capernaum, which was by the sea. The crowd anticipated that Jesus would sooner or later show up back at home. And so they were calculating that their best chance at a second encounter or a follow-up encounter with Jesus would be in Capernaum. So the crowd, looking for Jesus, eventually made their way to Capernaum. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi was a respectful way of referring to a teacher in that day. Their question was intended to satisfy their own curiosity. How in the world did Jesus escape their watchfulness on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Notice Jesus' response to their question in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You'll remember that truly, truly, I say to you, is an attention grabber. It's like he was saying, if you've heard nothing else I've said this morning, hear this one thing. But he didn't really answer their question, did he? When they found Jesus, he dodged their question and instead exposed their true motives. Loitering, looking, and listening to their exposure of their true motives. That was the road the crowd traveled. And you and I can learn from these two very different paths that lead away from the feeding of the 5,000. Lessons to learn from a tale of two roads. The first lessons are found in the disclosures we find here in this tale of two roads. Notice God is found offering comfort. In verse 20, Jesus reassured his terrified disciples with, It is I. Do not be afraid. Turn with me to Psalm 46 for just a moment. In 1982, I had just graduated from Briarcrest Bible College, married the girl of my dreams, and accepted a position at Oxford Baptist Church as Pastor George Bradford's associate. All our hopes and dreams were becoming a reality. We relocated to Cree Avenue here in Woodstock. I started vocational ministry on December 1st, 1982. That very day, we received a call from the University Hospital in London, Ontario. They wanted me to come back for a follow-up appointment as quickly as I could. Over the past eight months or so, I'd been seeing a specialist there, had a couple of appointments, I believe. 
um, because of some significant loss of hearing on my left side over a two-year period. The next day, we learned that I had a tumor that required immediate surgery. Three days later, just before leaving for the hospital, Pastor Bradford sat in our living room and read from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. In other words, your whole world is crumbling all around you. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And verse 10 is where Pastor Bradford really focused on. Cease striving. Cease striving. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 11, repeat. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In this world, you will have trouble. Those aren't my words. It's not even my prediction. Those are words directly from the lips of Jesus himself, as recorded in John chapter 16, verse 33. It may be relational challenges with a spouse, a neighbor, a client, health challenges, a wayward son or daughter, the death of someone you love, a battle with personal sin or addiction, depression, employment issues, financial pressures. The list can go on and on. The possibilities are limitless. And God may not deliver us from those kinds of troubles. But he does promise to be ever-present source of comfort, of strength, and courage. Allow me to read those very familiar words from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. In a tale of two roads, we find a God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can then comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Secondly, God is found offering correction. Jesus has exposed their wrong motives in verse 26, but look 
at verse, verse 27. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus was adjusting their perspective. Fix your eyes on eternity, eternal things, things that are going to last forever. And as we reflect on that, we realize that there are only two eternal things in this world, God's word and the souls of people. God wants us to get it right. Sometimes he uses other people to speak into our lives. And those people may not necessarily have a relationship with him. They may not be people that we really respect and, and value their opinion, but God sometimes uses all kinds of people to speak into our lives. Sometimes he uses circumstances to get our attention. And sometimes he uses our conscience, that inner voice within us, as unreliable as that may be at times because of the noetic effect of sin, our deceitful heart, and even for believers, that hangover of sin that we still suffer from. Of course, the, the most reliable source is the Word of God itself, the Scriptures, in concert with the illuminating influence the Spirit of God. God wants us, desperately wants us, to get it right. A tale of two roads, we find a God who corrects our misunderstandings and missteps and provides comfort in times of trouble. Lessons from a tale of two roads. The second set of lessons are found in the clarifications taken from this tale of two roads. First of all, believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, does not lead to a trouble-free life. I'm sorry, but that's reality. The disciples obeyed Jesus and found themselves in the midst of this very threatening storm. Cynthia, in her preparation for the Rock Ladies Bible Study this past week, reminded me the Christian life, as they've been studying First Peter, the Christian life is not primarily for our happiness, but for our holiness. There will be times when the only thing that carries you through the difficulties will be the strength and courage we receive from God. I remember a prof that I had during my undergraduate studies who was famous for when he led chapel during exam week would stand before the student body and he'd say, he'd say in his southern drawl or the accent that he had, when you find yourself at the end of the rope, just tie a knot and hang on. And I would say that for Christians, God ties the knot. And then he gives us the strength to hang on for dear life. Biblically, as I reflect on the scriptures, I think there, there are three possible explanations for believers finding themselves in tough times. The one, of course, is 
is the natural consequences of sin. Maybe our own, but maybe we're just collateral damage. We get caught in the sins of others, but, but the consequences of sin find us in, in difficult times. Secondly, the Lord's discipline. He's trying to correct us, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 talks about that. And then the third are just simply teachable moments. Storms on the Sea of Galilee. No one's fault, just part of the sanctification process. Remember that blind man that the disciples asked Jesus about? Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus responded, neither. His blindness is so that God would be glorified. Teachable moment. Regardless of how you arrived in your season of trouble, they can be a means of working out your salvation. And that, my friends, is the gospel. Christ died for our sins once for all time. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you safely home to God. Turn away from the counterfeit alternatives. Turn to Jesus, believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, does not lead to a trouble-free life, but it does offer a relationship with an almighty God who can provide strength, courage, and comfort. Someone who, when dressed in human flesh, is capable of walking on water in the midst of a storm. It is I. Do not be afraid. Believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God does not offer a need-free life, a life in which all our temporal needs are met, where all our hopes and dreams become a reality, and, well, it's just not so. The American dream is not available necessarily for all of us. It will not become a reality. When people tell us we can be whatever we want to be or we can accomplish whatever we put our mind to, that's a lie. And so is a prosperity gospel, by the way. God may not open the storerooms of heaven and pour out his healings and riches on your life. Doesn't matter how much or how little faith you have. God has never promised to be our personal vending machine of health, wealth, and happiness. Consider Jesus' claim. For even the Son of Man, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How about the hardships of the Apostle Paul? Tell those believers in 1 Peter that were suffering, scattered, persecuted. Believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not offer a need-free life where all our temporal needs are satisfied. 
but it does offer a view of life that stretches all the way into eternity. You and I can live in the light of eternity. Do not work for food that perishes. I too participated this week in a couple of funerals, one via television, Dr. Reverend Dr. Billy Graham died at the age of 99. And one here at the Rock Community Church yesterday afternoon, Dara Jane Lake, died a very young woman. Ruth Graham's testimony of her father's fun- at her father's funeral was a memorable moment for me. She had been through some very difficult times, felt that she had embarrassed her dad by decisions she had made, especially after her second divorce and she was making her way home, that a marriage that had lasted just five weeks. She said as she made her way up that winding path back to her parents' place, her dad was standing at the end of the driveway. She got out of the car, he put, her, put his arms around her and welcomed her home. She went on in her testimony yesterday to say that her dad wasn't God. But that day, he showed her what God was like. It was memorable for me. Then yesterday afternoon, as I sat here and watched a slideshow of a little girl that grew up to become a wife and mom, and then was gone, never to be seen on the planet again. I find funerals sobering times gives me a new perspective. Back in Briarcrest days, our president used to do chapels on Thursday mornings. I remember one in my freshman year where he was speaking, trying to get us to understand eternity. And he had, remember those straight razor blades they used to have? It was just a straight, it was sharp on both sides. He had one and he held it up. And he said, eternity... He said, in comparison to the width of this razor blade, think about your life as the width of that razor blade and eternity as the width of the southern Saskatchewan sky. You have to be in southern Saskatchewan to understand how flat that is. I used to say at school, there's no sense running away because we can get up three days later, and still see you running. And so it's the land of the living skies. That's what's on their license plate. The width of that razor blade, he said, is the width of your life in comparison to all eternity. And just think, what you do in the width of that razor blade determines your position for all eternity. I've never forgotten that illustration. Some of us may be here this morning who need to hear God's correction. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Next week, we'll continue looking at the bread of life discourse. Let's pray. Father, You are the creator and sustainer of all life.
Thank you for the gift of life, and not just physical life, but for the opportunity we have to gain eternal life because of the work accomplished by your one and only Son, Jesus the Christ. For those among us this morning who are afraid or discouraged, depressed or filled with anxiety, hurting or feeling isolated and alone, may they hear your words to the disciples. It is I. Do not be afraid as your word of comfort to them from a God who loves them and cares for them. Father, use us who've experienced your comfort to comfort these very people with the comfort we ourselves have received from you, the God of all comfort. May we become channels of your comfort. For those who have become consumed with the affairs of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, or the attractiveness of the alternatives, may they hear and respond to your corrective word. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. We ask these things be accomplished by the power of your spirit and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.